All right, good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who are still in finals and have yet not gone home yet, I uh, hope you're pressing on and not too stressed out. I'm glad that you're at church. Uh, how many people will be traveling outside of Boston by sometime in a week or so? Wow, which shows you how very few locals we have here. Um, well, wherever you go on Christmas and New Year, uh, we pray that, uh, that you get there safely. Hopefully the holiday travel isn't too stressful. Um, for those of you who will be around, uh, again, as, as Jason just mentioned, we're not going to be here, but we do encourage you to still go out somewhere. Um, something that the pastors always talk about is we, we always would love to see what worship services are like at the other churches that we are friends, or the people that we're friends with, other churches in the area, so that might be a cool opportunity. So uh, grab some friends and go search one of those places out. Um, but uh, because we won't be able to say it at all, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Um, why don't you say that to your neighbor right now? Wish them a, a Merry Christmas. All right. So uh, this past summer, um, my wife, Unji, and I, uh, some of you know, you may have seen on social media, we took a trip to Israel. Um, we spent our time in Jerusalem about a full week, and we went around spending or doing the touristy things which involve uh, the locations of very important things that happened in Jesus' life. So his death, his ascension, his, his, uh, his birth, things like that. And um, first of all, the question that usually comes to the tourist's mind or that is introduced by the tour guide is, if, if this is like thousands and thousands of years old, how are you so sure that this is the exact location where that happened? Like, there isn't like a manger still sitting in that same spot, and, uh, you know, how, how, how are you to know? Uh, and so they ended up explaining, just going back in history, around in the early, or, yeah, early 300s, uh, in the Roman Empire, the man who came to power was named Constantine. Uh, some of you may have learned that in high school or, or middle school when studying world, ancient history, and uh, you may recognize Constantinople. And um, Anyway, so Constantine comes to power, and he's the first Roman emperor who converts to Christianity, which is a huge deal before because all the Roman empires up until him uh, were very aggressively persecuting the church. So while Christians are literally being killed left and right and fearful of their lives, now the emperor, the guy who's in charge of all this, is a Christian. Turns out that Constantine's mom wanted to preserve these holy places. She saw them as significant, something that must be preserved as, you know, where Jesus did particular things in his life. And so what she did was she erected uh, towers or uh, monuments, uh, big churches, cathedrals over that spot so that they would be preserved for what she hoped was all time. And it seems to be working because they're still there today. Um, In Bethlehem, the place of Jesus's birth, there is a church there called the Church of the Nativity. And so Unji and I stopped by at the Church of the Nativity, and I want to talk about the few, the number of renovations that have happened, not recently, but over long periods of time to their entrance. So this is the entrance of the Church of Nativity, and if you look up top, you'll notice that this door has been changed. So this used, you see this crease here, and this used to be this giant, like, double doors that kind of open, but they adjusted it to making it just a doorway where there's no hinge. This was the original door, but turns out they actually added stone to the exterior of the building to make another door. So this is... Oops, Right here, this is the entrance that you would go in. So this is the outside of the Church of Nativity, the church that was built over the place of Jesus' birth. And if you zoom in a little bit, you'll notice that the entrance was changed again because you see this archway, how the stones are placed in this way. 
they filled this entire entrance up, leaving this part alone. So if you want to see this for scale, this is a picture of me when I had hair, um, coming through the door of the entrance of the Church of Nativity, looking all confused. Linji always says that she takes good pictures of me, but this isn't a good one, right? Um, This is the entrance. So I'm a small guy. I'm shorter than a lot of you, skinny, and that's how I had to go through to the entrance of this big, monumental church that stands over the place of Jesus' birth. What they named this entrance is the Humble Gate. So over time, as Christians from around the world have flocked to this special place to say a prayer or to see the things that were left there as monuments, they changed the door time and time again, forcibly making people lower themselves to prostrate themselves as they enter into the holy place. So he named it the Humble Gate, and it got smaller and smaller and smaller, in which only one person can go in and out at the same time, where there's millions of tourists coming year after year, and no two people can go in at the same time, and no man, woman, or child can go in standing tall, but they must bow themselves. This past few weeks, we've been in this Advent series. We're in the Christmas time, and since we started Advent, we opened up the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we titled the series uh, Living Ready because while we do around, we as Christians today, we're not just anticipating or, or celebrating the, the come again, whenever that day may be. So as a church, we've just been going through, yes, we'll celebrate Christmas, our lives, and how we strive after holiness, which the Apostle Paul keeps nailing into the Thessalonian church book and, what, and give, talk about Paul's last exhortation to the Christians and to us as ourselves. And so what I want to do actually right now, in this, or why people are encouraged to get on their knees or to hide away in a, in a prayer closet, but as our Christmas service, I want to invite you to together, let's come before this humble gate of... And let's just take a moment. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. That we can study it every Sunday of all things. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we can know, who we can sing about. Father, we pray that today you would stir affection for you. And that together, we love our days. We want to come before you humbly, also recognizing this amazing truth that you came humbly. That you were on the throne in heaven and you came down into a feeding trough and were born to a poor family in a poor land in a bad state. So we follow your example as we look upon you as our holy and mighty king, but also as our humble king. Thank you for welcoming us into this place. We thank you for your presence, which you promise dwells with us here. We pray that all of our hearts would just go out to adore Jesus Christ, our King, Emmanuel, God with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we're going to finish up in the book of 1 Thessalonians, so let's read this text together. If you have your own Bible and would prefer to look in there uh, on your paper or on your phone, you can do that. We're going to be in chapter 5, starting from verse uh, 14. We're going to be going through 18. If you don't, you can look up on the screen. So again, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5. And we're just going to be reading a a few chunk uh, of verses in the middle. So verses 14 through 18. So the Apostle Paul writes, 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to split this passage up into two simple parts. Our readiness, verses 14 through 15, and my readiness. So pretty simple, two parts. See that we can, we're going to see that break pretty easily in the way that Paul addresses the church. So starting with our readiness. Let me read that again. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So at the close of this letter to the Thessalonian church, what's, what I'm always appreciative of that just, I mean, my nature leads me in another way, but the scriptures always remind me in the correct way that when we say, okay, in this Advent season, we're living ready, we're going to grow in holiness, instantly I start thinking about me. I start thinking about my own personal holiness and what it looks like for me to change my life and to do my things and whether I'm following the rules or not or disobeying or not. But Paul, he talks about us. Every command that you see here cannot be lived out individually. You can't do these things alone in your room, and it involves community. It involves the church. It involves the way that you relate to people around you. So let's go through them one by one. We're just going to breeze through. He says, admonish the idol. Of all, if, in all these verses, uh, idol is actually the word that, uh, the, in the English translation that I dislike the most, because I'm pretty certain when you read idol, when I read idol, I think, lazy, apathetic, inactive. But this isn't the imagery or the word that uh, the Greek is trying to get at. Um, the imagery in the Greek is of a soldier who goes out of rank. So what it should say is something like admonish uh, the wayward. Admonish those who, uh, the insubordinate, the unruly, those who aren't abiding by the way. Uh, rogue might be a good synonym for this word. So, again, a soldier who's just kind of gotten himself out of rank, out of the given order. So Paul is saying, go after those in your community who are going off and doing their own thing, who are separating themselves, who are going rogue, who are, uh, who are isolating themselves and stepping away from the path. Go get them, admonish them, challenge them. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are the ones in our community, maybe even you, or maybe your friends, your roommates, your coworkers, the people in your family, those who are on the cusp or on the brink of giving up. People who are on the brink of losing hope. Those who need encouragement from you and from me. Paul writes to help the weak. The weak involves people who are uh, marginalized, the people who have no social status or social power. The weak are the people who cannot help themselves, that literally need somebody else to, in- to, to uh, intervene in order for their lives to, have a- to get any better. And the help word, if I'm going to talk about one word I don't like, the help in the Greek is so beautiful in that it has the imagery of somebody latching on. So if you look through a Greek lexicon, it'll say gripping tightly. Uh, Cleaving is a word that uh, will come up. So this idea of helping people is not just like assisting. It's grasping them and not letting go. It's beautiful language. Paul says to be patient with everyone, which is pretty 
simple. We don't really need to explain that too much. It's being uh, uh, the forbearance without complaining. It's long-suffering alongside of people. It's not cutting people off. It's not irritability or annoyance. It's being patient, tolerant of others. And lastly, he tells us not to retaliate, not to seek revenge, and to do good to all people. So if we can uh, just summarize these verses, I'm just going to give you my uh, summarized, paraphrased version. The Apostle Paul starts with our responsibility that each and every one of us is responsible for our neighbor. And he says, We urge you, church, caution the wayward and bring them back to the family of God. Give hope to those who are about to give up and are hopeless. Help people who cannot help themselves. Cling tightly in support of them. Be patient with everyone without complaining, especially those who are hard to love. Do not exercise revenge, but do good to all. So Paul paints a beautiful picture of the family of God and what it can look like when we all commit to this. This beautiful picture of how we, are, we will become more ready, more prepared. We will stand ready before the Lord when Jesus comes again if we're all committing to our holiness. Um, a few months ago, I was going over, uh, listening. I do a lot of podcast listening to in my car, and I was listening to a podcast on placebo. Uh, many of you guys have either seen a YouTube clip or learned about it in psychology class, about the placebo effect, and it's, and it's amazing. And, and this particular study had to do with uh, the researchers telling the doctors to prescribe the drug in a different way. So there are two groups. One group is positive, and one group is either neutral or negative. So one group of doctors would have a patient sit down in front of them. They would explain their symptoms. And the doctor would say, oh, you know what? I know just the thing. I prescribe this drug to all of my patients. They rarely, if ever, I've never heard a patient come back to me and say they've seen any side effects. So you're you're safe on that. And and I'm pretty sure you're going to feel better in no time. On the flip side, there are other doctors, again, who are either neutral or negative. So they would say, oh, well, you know, it kind of depends on who you are. You know, the human body is so complicated that some people respond super well to these drugs and other people don't. Uh, so you might just, you just got to let me know and we'll do follow-up appointments and we'll see. Or negative, like, okay, this is going to help and you're just going to have to press through, but be ready to be nauseous and dizzy. You're not allowed to drive while you're taking this drug. Make sure you keep us updated, keep the phone line on. And they were just kind of scared them. If you've ever read a placebo or listened to a placebo effect, you kind of know where I'm going at with this. There was these clear cut differences in the responses that people were having. That the people who were told all this positive stuff actually started to feel the benefits of the drug, which is no drug at all. It's sugar. It's a little pill of sugar. So there's no active ingredients. There's no drug being ingested by their body and being flowed out into their bloodstream. There's nothing. I've heard that before, but the crazy part to me, maybe you've heard this before, I mean, those of you in medicine or in the sciences, the people who were told negative things actually started to feel the side effects. That just, like, blew my mind. That in a sugar pill given and said, oh, be careful of nausea and dizziness, that the study, the people who were involved in the study would report back feeling nauseous, feeling dizzy from a sugar pill. It's crazy. So if you look at this, like whether this study or the placebo effect studies, uh, the science world will just kind of be amazed at it, right? 
uh, researchers will say, uh, you know what, this is like, it shows the power of the human brain and how we have barely scratched the surface of the ability of the human brain. But in the church, as a Christian, as, as I was thinking about it as a pastor, I see it completely differently. Well, I mean, not that I disagree. The human brain is powerful, and maybe we have just scratched the surface. But the way that I see it is that there's this big word that just shouts out, and that word is hope. When I see this placebo story, I hear and I see that people were given hope that they would be delivered from their ailments by the doctor. This pill is going to help you. And it's so clear from these studies that how much the effect, just the posture, the way, the, the words that the doctor used, the way that your physician treats you seems to be, make this huge divide in whether you feel all the benefits or whether you actually start feeling the side effects. While science can even prove something to us, and scripture makes it very clear how much of a powerful effect people have on each other. There is some crazy way that we don't know the fullness of in the ways that humans interact, how we depend and need each other, and how powerful our actions go to change each other's lives. So much so that someone can hand another person a sugar pill and they can start feeling better. So Paul, he talks about all these great things to commit to how you bless the people around you and how our commitment to our readiness, our holiness, what kind of power it has. And so I want to encourage you, church, to not underestimate the amount of power you have to change someone's life and to bless them. And on the flip side, for those of you who are isolated, doing your own, maybe you have friends, but maybe you're a taker, 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 taker. Do not shirk your responsibility of the responsibility or of that responsibility that you have for other people. Do not withdraw, do not isolate yourselves because there are people who are not being strengthened and blessed in the ways that they can in tremendous ways because of your inactivity. So for those of you who are in this and for it, I want to encourage you, don't even you don't even realize how great of a power you have and how much you are blessing and strengthening people. For those of you who are not there yet, just get in, let's get on that bus so that we can do this together. So then he starts talking about my readiness. So the second part of this passage, he first talks about the collective community responsibility, and then he starts talking about our own and what that looks like for you as an individual. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If we first look at these verses, I'm sure that you don't need to be a biblical scholar to realize he's not being completely literal, like saying you must be praying like this and walking around all times of the day. Even Paul didn't do that. But I don't also want to brush off the the always and forever language in that Paul is emphasizing a permanence and constancy in a way. He's emphasizing a constant connection and mindfulness in our connection with God, and he puts it, these three things at the core, being joyful, being prayerful, being grateful. It's interesting to me how Paul, of all people, could encourage people to be joyful, because this guy, if you know about his life, went through so much suffering and pain. And so if anybody can teach us, hey, 
be, be joyful always or rejoice always, it's the Apostle Paul. Because what he learned at some point in his life in the midst of his suffering was that joy and grief does and can go together. That they are not mutually exclusive things like oil and water, but that they mesh. The Apostle Paul also learned that the spirit of prayer, it's not forever and always like this and being on our knees and closing our eyes, but it is a conscious permanence in our consciousness, our permanence in our consciousness with God and our yielding ourselves to Him without ceasing. So while you not, might not always be alone in your room on your knees, we can live our lives daily and forever in a way, in a posture of yielding ourselves. God, my life is for you. How can I live in your ways? And then Paul teaches us how we can be thankful in every circumstance. Because, in fact, the circumstances are not the dictator of our gratefulness. But our gratefulness will end up dictating our circumstances and how we see them. One commentator puts it really well. Um, He says, The reason the apostle gives for this call to joy, prayer, and thanksgiving is the strongest and highest imaginable for the Christian. These are not optional, secondary characteristics of the Christian's existence, but stand at the center of God's plan for his people in Christ Jesus. Let me read that one more time, so follow along. The reason the apostle gives for this call to joy, prayer, and thanksgiving is the strongest and highest imaginable for the Christian. These are not optional, secondary characteristics of the Christian's existence, but stand at the center of God's plan for his people in Christ Jesus. When you, uh, maybe when you think about the Christian walk, when I do, I start thinking about lists of to-dos and don't-dos and, 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 you know, like, rules. But what this, what Paul is talking about, what this commentator starts to flesh out a little bit better is how what's at the core isn't the list of do's and rules and stop doing this and you go and do this and make sure you do this, but it's about joy. It's about prayer. It's about thanksgiving, standing at the core of what it means to be a Christian. We're reminded about what the, what the whole gospel message and story tells us about everything that we have in Christ is unearned. That our merit and our obedience to the rules don't, doesn't change our standing before God because it's Christ's blood that is the only thing that speaks on our behalf. Not our merit, not our actions. So at the center of it all, at the core, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, as we approach Christmas, and as we put a close into this book of First Thessalonians and talk about our readiness for the second coming of Jesus, what I want to encourage all of you is to take these verses from the Apostle Paul, put it on a sticky note, email it to yourself, your phone, do whatever it takes. Highlight these verses in your Bible. Write it in your journal. Do what you have to do to make this commitment to our readiness, understanding your responsibility and your commitment to the people around you, that you're not an island, that life isn't meant to be an individual endeavor, and also to your own in what it looks like for joy, prayer, and gratefulness to stand at the center of your life so that we can be standing ready and prepared for when Christ comes again. Um, there have been a handful of you who have asked me um, just 
I guess through seeing pictures on social media, if I have tattoos. Um, and a bunch of you have seen, I mean, I'm not, I do, uh, they're under my shirt, and you don't often see me like half naked unless I'm at the beach with you or swimming for some reason. Uh, but I do. Um, one is on my ribcage and one is on my sternum. They're like this. In, in August 2015, uh, many of you know, uh, but I know there's a lot of newcomers, so you don't. Uh, in, in August 2015, my mom passed away after fighting cancer for a little over a year. And after a number of months, I decided to get my tattoos in, in honor of her. Uh, the first, uh, one of my rib cages, her favorite Bible verses in Korean. And the second is an outline of a cross pendant that she left me. So while really struggling with the grief of losing my mom, I decided to put these things on my body so that every day I look in the mirror and am confronted by this biblical truth in the verse and the cross resting over my heart. I can't get away from it. It's with me forever. <laughs> After my mom died, I was talking to Pastor Bill, and he said to me um, this one day, he said, uh, when you're ready and it's your turn to preach, instead of doing what the sermon series is on, just Preach about what you've learned through this experience. And I've actually never told him, but uh, I tried three times. Um, I made three attempts naively, thinking that I was ready. I started typing up my sermons, getting about to one to one and a half pages before deleting it. Uh, And this week was the same. I'm not ready, and I'm not sure when I will be. But the thing that brought me some stress and that I had to ask God for wisdom for is that these verses that I just preached out of today are the ones that are permanently on my body, and it was my turn to preach. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These words are permanently etched onto my body because these were my mom's favorite Bible verses. So while I cannot and could not do the full sermon, I feel like I have to address at least this. These were my mom's favorite verses, and I learned that in two ways. The first is the obvious, and that she told us. She loved the passage, and she talked about it. But after she got diagnosed with cancer, fought through, and died, I learned it in a second and completely different way. The first way I heard that they were her favorite verses In the second way, I saw that they were her favorite verses through the way that she lived her life. I saw before my very eyes what it looks like for someone to be joyful, prayerful, and grateful even through extreme suffering. I learned through my mom's life that our favorite verses are not proven through our memorization of them. Our favorite verses and biblical teachings are shown through how they transform our lives. Our favorite verses are the ones that we live out, the ones that take deep root in our souls. On my body at all times, I have the legacy and memory of my mother. And although I tattooed myself in honor of her, It's a testimony of her life that both things actually don't point to her, but point to Jesus. 
These tattoos remind me of my mom, but they tell me about Jesus. I wish I could say that I've been able to follow in her footsteps and been able to live this out. I wish I could tell you that every morning I wake up and brush my teeth, stare in the mirror, and read these verses, and it energizes me to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. But I'm very much a work in progress. But let me tell you this. The more you've committed to our readiness, the more I've been able to commit to mine. We feed into each other. And you've, some of you, many of you have strengthened me. And the more I've been able to commit to mine, the more I've been affecting others. And people have shared and, and told me that I've helped them in one way or another. We are all connected. So all rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks is a tough task for us to do every day and to everybody. So let's stop waiting for the readiness, both for your neighbors and for yourself. Let's stop waiting for this to happen, and let's start readying ourselves together and make it happen ourselves. So I want to invite you to uh, bow with me in prayer. And actually, the worship team, you guys can come up too. And if we could, let's spend um, a few minutes praying for uh, people in your life who... apply to one of these categories, whether it be the idle or wayward, the faint-hearted, the, the weak, those who need people to be patient with them, people that need some good in their life. Instead of waiting till we leave the service, let's do it now. And let's start through our prayers. So take a moment to, to pray. And then I'll close for us in a minute. we say it a lot during Christmas time and we even sang it earlier that you're the light of the world and I pray Lord as we close 
that we would all sit on that idea or that thought, that line, that prayer, that declaration for a moment. Because there seems to be, from all of history, so much darkness in this world. Whether it be global issues and big things that are scattered on the news headlines, or even in our own souls, in our own personal lives, things that others cannot see. But instead of staying a distant God, you chose to come down in the flesh and to bring light to where there is darkness. Help us as a church to see how artificial the lights are that the world created in the Christmas season. That the lights on trees are no lights at all. But that true light that overcomes darkness is found only in Christ Jesus. Help us not to take Christmas season lightly and to not realize in its fullness what it means that you fulfilled and answered that long promise that you would that you would send the Messiah to save your people. So during this Advent and as we approach Christmas, God, we give great thanks to you. And in response, we want to commit ourselves to each other. We want to commit ourselves to you, O Lord. We want to be the ones that strengthen others beyond what we even realize we can do. And we want to be ones that can stand even through the greatest amount of darkness. Even darkness that may seem insurmountable to us, God, and be able to say, because of Christ, I'm able to rejoice. I'm able to be prayerful. I'm able to be thankful. We know that it's only your Holy Spirit's power dwelling and moving and working in us that allows us to do this. So we ask that you would come in a mighty way as we want to come humbly before you to be ready for your coming. I pray a blessing over everyone here, Lord, that as they travel or or spend time with family and friends during Christmas, that all praise would go to Jesus in our gatherings. And that together we might rejoice together we would lift up prayers to you and that together we would lift up a cry of thanksgiving. Thank you for the light that you bring to all of our lives. Thank you that we trust you because you kept that first promise and we know that you will come again. We rejoice over you with singing, Lord, at this time. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.